All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for uh, your word and for the, um, the wisdom that's contained in it. It is so much higher than ours, and we would do so well to, uh, to pay attention to it. So, Lord, I just ask that you would speak through me today and help me to speak truth. We give you the praise, Lord, and all the glory, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, looking at me now, tall, good-looking, <laughs> an amazing physical specimen, well-educated, humble, modest, It hurts you more than it hurt me. <laughs> With all of those things going for me, you might have a hard time believing that I was persecuted as a kid. Um, but I was. It was a long time before I finally kind of grew into my size, both physically and emotionally. Now, you know, as I, as I got older, I really loved it. But, you know, early on in my life, it made me different. And, and I'm sure you can remember, you know, back to your, uh, you know, grade school, high school days, being different was not anything that you really wanted to be, right? You just wanted to fit in. You just wanted to be like everybody else. Um, and in my case, all I wanted to do was fit in, and I stood out like a sore thumb, almost literally, right? So I got teased for being slow, for being unathletic, uh, generally not cool. Uh, then, to add insult to injury, I got braces and acne, and that just really enhanced my not cool status. Um, and it also happens that when you are unnaturally tall, uh, grown-ups think you're older than you are. And so you end up, people expect stuff out of you that you really can't do. So I can remember going to basketball camp as a sixth grader, and they put me with all of the eighth graders. Well, it doesn't seem like a big jump, but if you really remember those two years, there's a pretty significant, significant difference in physical development. I was as tall as they were, but I wasn't anywhere near as strong <coughs> or had the coordination to keep up with them. So it, was, uh, it just wasn't a lot of fun. Eventually it got fun, but you know it wasn't fun for a while. Now I must say that as persecution stories go, that's uh, actually pretty tame, right? You know, typically when we encounter that word persecution, we think about radical Islamists subjecting Christians um, and sometimes even their own families, to beheadings, to honor killings, um, and other just atrocities and brutalities that seem really foreign to us, you know, here in the U.S. And the thing is that that form of persecution is not lessening. It's actually getting worse. Uh, in 2016, after 25 years of chronicling and ranking uh, political and societal restrictions on religious freedom experienced by Christians across the world, uh, a, 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 an organization called Open Doors USA identified two 2016 as the worst year ever. That's in 25 years of, of um, checking this. 
they found that persecution of Christians rose across the globe for the third year in a row, and it was reaching unprecedented levels in countries located in South and Southeast Asia, uh, among other locations. And their report corroborated an earlier study that was done by um, Censure, the Center for Studies on New Religions, which is based in Turin. Uh, and they found that in 2016, some 90,000 Christians were killed for their faith around the world. Now see, stories like these fit our concept of persecution. But in a Christianity Today article on Christian persecution in America, a Middle Eastern underground church, house church leader was quoted as saying this, persecution is easier to understand when it's physical, torture, death, imprisonment. American persecution is like an advanced stage of cancer. It eats away at you, yet you cannot feel it. That is the worst kind of persecution. Now, there were two Supreme Court decisions, you're, you're well aware of both of them, that I feel like were sort of the early stages of this cancer. In 1962 and 1963, school-sponsored prayer and Bible readings were declared unconstitutional. And then, of course, in 1973, Roe versus Wade, in a second case, Doe versus Bolton, legalized abortion in the first trimester. Now, those were huge decisions that had an enormous impact on religious liberty. But since then, the cancers continued to grow, and the patient remains largely unaware. Some recent examples include the following. Home Bible studies are now banned in the city of San Juan Capistrano, California. According to city officials, regular gatherings of more than three people in private homes are simply not allowed. One couple has held home Bible studies for years and has already be been fined twice and is being threatened with even more fines. Watch out, you guys. You're next. <laughs> PayPal has initiated formal investigations of a large number of Christian websites and organizations due to concerns that these entities do not hold to a politically correct view of sexuality. In Wichita, Kansas, a Christian minister was handcuffed and hauled off to jail by police for sharing the gospel and handing out tracts to Muslims on a public sidewalk. <clears throat> a high school student in Southern California was suspended for two days because he had private conversations with his classmates during which he discussed Christianity. He was also banned from ever bringing his Bible to school. Down in Texas, the Department of Veteran Affairs actually tried to ban prayers that included the words God or Jesus during funeral services for veterans. In North Carolina, a pastor was dismissed from his chaplaincy duties for praying in the name of Jesus. Uh, on June 18th, this is back in 2010, two Christians decided that they would peacefully pass out copies of the Gospel of John on a public sidewalk outside a public Islamic festival in Dearborn, Michigan. Within three minutes, eight police officers surrounded them and placed them under arrest. 
A Christian consultant was fired by Bank of America and by Cisco because they discovered a book that he had written that expressed Christian viewpoints on social issues. A federal judge actually ruled that the University of California can deny course credit to applicants from Christian high schools that use textbooks that teach it was God who created the earth. In 2009, one eight-year-old boy in Massachusetts was sent home from school and was forced to undergo psychological evaluation because he drew a picture of Jesus on the cross. During a congressional hearing in 2011, U.S. Representative Sheila Jackson Lee warned that Christian militants might try to bring down the country and that such groups need to be investigated. Now those are some specific examples, but certainly not isolated ones. Consider the nurses who are told they must, par they must participate in abortions or lose their jobs. The florists, photographers, caterers, and farm owners who are told they must embrace same-sex couples who seek them to hire them for wedding ceremonies or face fines imposed by the government. Consider the Catholic adoption agencies that are told they must place children with same-sex couples or cease serving orphans. The high school football coaches and parochial schools who are told that they are not allowed to gather for voluntary prayers before or after games. So do you still think persecution only happens somewhere other than this country? So now that we understand that we're just as subject to it as anybody else, maybe in slightly different form, perhaps, as this man said, an even more insidious form. Because stories like those don't get a lot of public, you know, got a lot of widespread publicity. You know, you, you kind of have to dig to find them. And so the most, most people have no idea some of these things are happening. So now that we do understand that this is happening to us, what does God have to say about, you know, how do we deal with persecution? Um, and so uh, I want to turn to the book of 2 Timothy, and we're going to look at uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 17. So, and this is Paul writing to his uh, disciple, Timothy, right? And he starts off by saying, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Well, the obvious question that comes kind of from this is, well, when are the last days? Well, the last days are not something that's going to be happening in the future. The last days are now. Jesus inaugurated the last days, right? The, the last, the final, this final epoch of time began with Jesus, and it continues on. And we've, we've used this uh, analogy a hundred times, but I haven't found one that really fits as well, but, you know, the, the idea of uh, World War II and D-Day, okay? D-Day effectively, the, the invasion of Normandy, effectively ended the war, okay? From that point on, there was no way that the, uh, the Axis was going to win. 
But that did not mean that there weren't continuing battles. And so for like another six months, some of the bloodiest battles of World War II occurred after the Normandy invasion. And that is really a good analogy for the time that we're living in. Jesus has won the war. It's over. We've declared victory, but the war, I guess you should say that, but the fighting continues. Okay. And um, so in these days, we, what we find are the devil's attempts to really destroy and undermine as much of God's intentions as he possibly can. Right? So that's the battle we're in. All right, so that's really what Paul is saying to Timothy. So then he goes on, and he gives us this uh, pretty brutal list. He says, For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, Brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lover, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. And so what I think Paul's saying here is that as people neglect the spiritual dimension of their life, you know, th that kind of inner life, um, they turn in upon themselves to find meaning and consolation, you know, in the midst of all the craziness that, that makes up our lives. And so Paul's giving us this list of the characteristics of, number one, false teachers, because that's kind of what he's talking about here, but it, it really applies universally to all who um, are neglecting this power of God. And he gives us the key to unlocking the whole list at the very beginning. Lovers of self. See, in these last days, people refuse the love of God and they choose instead to love themselves. And so when we fall in love with ourselves, our own appetites really just consume our souls. We start to pander to that solitary eye you know, which must of necessity dismiss all the threats and counterclaims uh, to our own affections, right? So everything from thoughts to possessions have to be lavished upon ourself, the one that we truly love. And so if that's where we're beginning, then that just kind of leads us right down this list. That leads quite naturally to becoming a lover of money. The more money I have, the more stuff I can buy for me. Selfish people are typically proud and arrogant. Pride then can lead them to be abusive in their speech and behavior. They think they're better than everyone else, and so they treat everyone as a lesser uh, individual. Children disobedient to their parents also characterize the last days. And I thought this was interesting, and I was curious as to why, you know, why would Paul put that in here? But I did a little research and I found out that in the Jewish mind, being disobedient to parents equaled rebellion, okay? And so rebellion against any kind of authority to the Jewish mindset always implies revolt against God. The next few words, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, 
uh, you really don't need to analyze those a whole lot, um, except to highlight the fact that those terms describe people that are totally given over to selflessness, selfishness, sorry, selfishness. Uh, slanderous refers to an unbridled tongue, a mouth that spreads rumors, gossips, or lies to the harm of others. Uh, the ungodly who, who proliferate, proliferate during the last days also um, evidence a lack of self-control. They degenerate to wildness and are not lovers of good. As such, they are treacherous or traitors, lacking in faithfulness. The ungodly are reckless, thoughtless in their actions and speech. Paul then closes his list much as he began it by calling such people swollen with conceit. He then concluded with the statement, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And those who elevate themselves above all other people are going to eventually choose to elevate themselves above God as well. And Paul summarizes at the, at the very end by saying that these people have the appearance of godliness but deny its power. And so I think what he means by this is that the essence of ungodliness really comes from within, but then it comes out in behavior. Okay? You can't hide true Christianity. It's a private religion, but it has a public effect, right? Um, you really, you know, people do watch what you do. Uh, and I've said this before, but, you know, my friend that, that told me this statement years and years ago about you don't have to go around telling everyone you're a Christian. Don't, just don't let it be a surprise when they find out. It speaks directly to this, right? You know, you don't want that someone to come up and go, really? No way. You're a Christian? No. Come on, stop kidding around. Now, I think in this text, the very last sentence here comes across as a little bit odd at first. You know, Paul tells Timothy to avoid these people, which doesn't sound like a Christian principle, really. You know, I mean, not exactly, but these are kind of the people Jesus sort of liked to hang around with. But I think perhaps that, you know, what he's thinking about is that in Timothy's official associations, uh, you know, such as being a teacher, he's telling him that it's not a good idea to hang around with these other false teachers, right? He needs to keep himself separated from them so that, um, you know, he's not just drawn into their heresy by association. And it also could be that Timothy is a relatively young man at this time, okay? And um, he's, his character is still being formed. And I think Paul is telling him that it's, it's really better off not to associate with these people until your faith is strong enough that you can kind of deal with it. You know, I've often said I thought that was part of what seminary was about. Because, you know, some of the stuff that, that they, they taught us was pretty out there. I would come home, Sally would ask me, what have you learned in school? And then she would say, get thee behind me, Satan. <laughs> because it was like, really? You know, that, what kind, is this a Christian seminary, really? Is that what, what are we paying money for this for? But I think the reasoning for that was that 
part of the objective was that as a student, you have got to get to a point where you are rock solid in what you believe and you can defend it, right? They're going to throw all of these things at you and you can kind of pick and choose, you know, what you believe and what you don't believe. And it doesn't matter as long as you can defend what you picked, right? So that's really, I think, the purpose. It's to challenge you to start to really think about uh, and I know I've, I probably have said this before, but and oddly enough, there are people who will come into a school like that and have what my friend Kevin refers to as a felt board Christianity. In other words, you know, their view of Christianity can be um, exhibited on the felt board that or is used in Sunday school class to teach kids, you know, with the little felt characters that go on there of Noah and the ark and all the animals and so forth. And so many people have never thought deeply about some of what they believe. And so this is a chance to really sort of winnow out and to get people to engage some of these issues. All right, enough about that. Let's move on. Verse 6. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. So you can see now he's kind of kept that, um, the false teacher uh, in mind as he's been going through this. And, uh, you know, even in his general description of, of ungodliness. And so now he's returning back to the subject of these false teachers. And evidently they had kind of a standard operating procedure. You know, they would, um, they would weasel their way into homes to somehow try and gain control. And they would do it by holding something similar to maybe a home Bible study or some sort of a teaching or a discussion group or whatever. And, um, you know, Paul is saying, don't fall for it. And it's interesting because he said, despite all of the hours that they have spent studying, they're always learning, but they're never able, really able to acknowledge what's true. Does that describe us sometimes? You know, we read one book, and then we read another book, and, and, and we're, we're looking for something. And really all we've got to do is kind of focus on our faith and figure out that what we've been looking for is there all along. Now, just to mention these two individuals, Janus and Jambres, uh, they, don't they don't appear anywhere in the Bible. And the only reason we kind of know who, well, other than this spot, but they don't appear in the Old Testament, let's put it that way. Um, but their names were familiar through uh, the other Jewish literature of that day. And evidently they were some kind of sorcerers who were opposing Moses, you know, at that time. And so, um, and so th I guess maybe Timothy is kind of feeling like, you know, maybe he's start starting to lose some ground with these false teachers. Um, and so Paul's trying to encourage him in, the, in that sense and saying, you know, yeah, that, if that's happening, it's not going to go very far. You need to keep doing what you're doing. Then in verse uh, 10 and 11, you, however, 
have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endure, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. And so he's, what he's saying is that the, the evidence against the false teachers, kind of like we talked about earlier, resided not only in their theology, but in their behavior as well. And now Paul is sort of asking Timothy to evaluate him. You've seen me. You've seen what I've done. You've seen what I've been through. Okay. Um, you examine my life and you'll see what is supposed to, to be the result of your faith, that his teaching was founded in truth, his conduct was expressed in pur purity, and his steadfastness was driven by the glory of God. And that's what he's trying to get Timothy to see here. And then verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not something you see on a lot of greetings cards. <laughs> <laughs> Happy birthday, indeed, all who desire. <coughs> and what I think we need to understand here is that persecutions are not reserved for the so-called super saints and apostles. Right? Distress belongs to any believer who commits himself or herself to loyal obedience and growth and godliness. but it remains as well in the hands of a believer whether you will choose a life of godly obedience or slip away into the shadow of compromise. It's your choice. Thirteen, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So the fate of the believer is persecution, but the fate of evil men and imposters was ongoing corruption. Um, the deceptions to which these people uh, were prey and the deceived teachings which they promoted really help explain why followers of Christ face these continual persecutions. See if this doesn't resonate with you. Godliness elicits a strong reaction from unbelievers, right? And the reaction becomes all the more intense and violent when Christians live out their godliness because it convicts others of their sin. And unfortunately, I believe we saw a hint of this at the uh, Women's March that was held last Sunday in Washington, D.C., no, last Sunday. Now, the organizers of this march originally welcomed three pro-life groups, New Wave Feminists, and then there were none, and Stanton Healthcare as partners, to be partners as part of this event. But when the abortion advocates learned that these groups were going to be partners, um, they made an enormous fuss on social media. And so the march organizers quickly caved to the abortion activists and kicked those groups out. Still, despite that, some of the pro-life women chose to, to just go to the march and protest the event 
And while they were there, they had their signs torn up and they were verbally abused. One activist told one of the uh, women, if your mother had done the right thing, you wouldn't be here. I can't think of a situation that sort of better describes evil people going from bad to worse. Verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul knows that Timothy was schooled in the sacred writings by his mother and his grandmother. We know that from other places in Scripture. And so he, he knows what's right. He just needs to stick with it. Right? So he's telling him, just remember kind of where you've come from. Verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, the Bible originates with God, yes? Okay. And that's important because claims of origin carry a great significance. Because authority lives with whoever has created something. All right? That's why I think people invest such enormous effort in trying to disprove that God was the creator of earth. And they question the authenticity of the Bible. Because if you, if you admit to God's authorship and God's creative abilities, and if you accept that, then you're essentially accepting his authority over every aspect of your life. And, what, and so by <laughs> stating that the scriptures are God-breathed, Paul is establishing the Bible's claim as God's authoritative word over all people. Okay? And then finally, he closes by saying that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so Paul tells us here that um, the goal of Scripture is not just to keep us busy. It's not just to obtain knowledge. It's to help us learn so that we can do everything that God wants us to do. And so in the case, you know, in this case, Timothy could withstand all these attacks, all the false teachers, the abandonment of professing believers, and the persecution that surrounded him because God had equipped him for the task. All right, now I've got a confession to make. I don't like the conclusion of this passage. You know, after I spent time researching Christian persecution in the U.S., I got really worked up, and I wanted to come in here, and I wanted to give you a why are we sitting around, was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor kind of speech. <laughs> if you're not a movie fan, you'll just think I don't know U.S. history. But he got it. But I couldn't do that because there was one phrase in this passage that wouldn't let me. At the end of verse 11, after listing all of the persecutions that he had gone through, Paul writes, yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. And that's what I want you to take home today. Yet from them all, 
the Lord rescued me. Our role is not to battle persecution. According to Paul, it's to keep on doing the work that Jesus called us to do. To be his witnesses. He will fight the persecution battles as he chooses. Now, I'm not saying that you should necessarily protest. You know, I don't want to give the impression that I'm saying those things are necessarily bad. I'm just saying this is what Paul's telling Timothy. And that's what I'm talking about today. God has equipped us for the task of withstanding persecution no less than he equipped Paul and Timothy. We just need to know the secret to Paul's ability to do it. And it's staring you right in the face right now. You know what it is? Do you want to know what it is? I call it the holy yet. You could also call it the holy conjunction because it works just as well with others as we're going to see here in a minute. But the holy yet is a bridge. It picks you up from where you're stuck and invites you into faith. You see, if we didn't have the negative in life, there'd be no need for faith. Think about that for a second. You don't deny the negative because it's real. But it's what prompts your move into faith. And so what happens is the holy yet moves you from the level of the soul, which is your thoughts and your feelings, which are perfectly normal. And it moves you to the level of the spirit and to faith to allow the Jesus that is in you to respond to the situations through you with his life. The situation doesn't change, but you have shifted inside. And so to operate the holy yet, you have to put the bad stuff first and God's truth last. You can't always change the stuff, but you can change whether or not you're going to receive it. And so what comes after the yet is what you have received. Let's look again. Here's verse, the first part of verses 10 and 11, and I edited down a little bit. But it says, Paul talks about the stuff. You, however, have followed talks about some good things, but then he says, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which, which persecutions I endured. And then he finishes with what he received. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Now see, you can use this with any conjunction, and it works particularly well with but. I just kind of hesitated from calling it the holy... So I thought conjunction worked better. <laughs> so here we go. I feel awfully weak, but God is my strength. I'm sorrowful, but God is my peace. I'm in pain, but Christ is my sufficiency. I want to watch this TV show. 
But Christ in me wants to take time to listen to my friend's hurt. The key is agreeing with God, with what God says and putting that after the conjunction. See, so often we, we reverse it. We say, God is my sufficiency, but I just don't have enough stuff. And, you know, my life is terrible and this and that. And so we're, we're, we, that just shows we're living, you know... <laughs> I think it's sort of, you know, we talk about, you know, the southern, um, <laughs> it's equivalent to the southern saying where you say, well, bless his heart, <laughs> and then you just rip, rip him to shreds <laughs> in what comes after that. Bless his heart, he's such a moron. <laughs> True, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, bless his heart, he's just, he couldn't find his foot with a, you know, magnifying glass, or whatever, okay? It's the same thing. What we're doing is, you know, not in that case, but in this case, we're, we're just reversing that. We want to have the, the, the truth, the truest truth, okay? Uh, we're going to talk about this in about a month or so. We're going to really get into this Christ in me, the hope of glory, and really start to unpack that in a way that I hope will convince you that that's really true because I'll bet you a bunch of money that a lot of people sitting here read that, go, okay, and they don't ever really think about that. So we're going to look at that in some depth so that, and hopefully at the end of that, you will really begin to believe that Christ in you is the hope of glory. But the thing regarding this holy conjunction is that if you can grab a hold of this truth and not let go, you will be amazed at the difference that it makes. You'll still have trials. John, are you signaling me? That's good. You're still going to be persecuted. But how you will now go through them will be a witness to others and possibly even a salvation to them. You won't go through them like the world goes through them. You'll go through them in the power of the Spirit and in the joy of the Lord. You understand that you're not alone. You understand that your life counts. And you understand the holy yet. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Amen. All right. If I could ask the uh, worship team to come back up. I see Amy has stepped out. Um, all right. Well, you guys start to make your way up here. Um, I'll just share something else that I ran across recently that I thought was, was really uh, kind of a cool thing to think about. We'll stand up here and we'll talk about the importance of evangelism, right? You know, it's important for us to go out and to tell others about Jesus and, and so forth. And I think what happens a lot of the time when we do that is even though we don't specifically say this, what people hear is, I need you, Donna, 
to go out and bring someone to Christ. All right, that's kind of the burden that I think we put on ourselves when we hear that. All right, consider this. The Billy Graham Evangelistic Association did a survey, and they found out that on average, so these are averages, on average it takes seven encounters for someone to make a decision to come to faith. All right, so seven touches, seven encounters with God, however you want to phrase that, it takes on average seven of those before someone makes that decision, right? Because we're not going to get anywhere if we go out and we try to argue or force someone into making that decision. You can't argue somebody into the kingdom. I'm sorry, it just won't work. You might get them there for five minutes, but they'll step right back out. And so the thought here is, well, rather than approaching evangelism from the standpoint of I've got to go out and I'll, I'm not successful unless I get somebody into the kingdom. What if we looked at it from the standpoint of I'm going to go out and I'm going to try to be one of those seven encounters that somebody has. And it doesn't matter whether they accept me or reject me. You know, it's not, I'm not defining success that way. I'm defining success simply by saying, I'm going to go bless somebody somehow, however God leads me to do it, and that is being evangelistic. So in other words, you could be standing in line at a grocery, and maybe God leads you to pay for somebody else's groceries. You could be standing in the same line of the grocery, and God suddenly gives you this really strong word or impression for the checkout lady or man. You know, God can operate in all those ways. And in each one of those occasions and on the myriad of others that may be available, you have the opportunity to be one of those seven encounters that that person has. And all you've got to do is just obedient to whatever, be obedient to whatever God has told you to do. And I think if we'll start to look at it that way, evangelism won't scare us so much. We can really think about living an evangelistic lifestyle um, without necessarily ever knowing if anything we did ever resulted in anyone coming into the kingdom. My sense is that, that it will, but you don't, it doesn't matter. You don't have to see. Remember, you know, um, Paul writes you know, basically that I watered or Apollos watered someone plants waters, harvests, right? Okay, you don't do all of those. You have a part, God has a part, the person has a part, but it's not just you, it's probably you and six others that play a role in getting that person to make that decision. And so look at it that way and just look for those opportunities to be one of those seven um, opportunities that someone has to hear something about Jesus. You get an impression for someone and you just go, you know, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus and sometimes he tells me things about people and I just got the strong sense, Donna, that um, um, you've, you're an artist and uh, just wanted to encourage you in that. Is that, you know, is that true? And you know, hopefully she says, well, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm an artist or, you know, whatever. But I mean, that's what I'm talking about. 
You, know, you just get that sort of sense and you just share that with someone. So anyway, let's, um, let's stand. If I could get some people to pray, you would come up front, please. Just be available. I don't sense any kind of specific prayer need today. Just if you need prayer for anything, physical, decisions, whatever the case may be, uh, we'd love to pray for you. We're going to, um, I'm just going to kind of do a dismissal now. You're welcome just to stay as long as you like. Worship team's going to play. Uh, we'll, we'll turn the lights back off so it's a little uh, more peaceful in here. And... Um, you're free to stay, you're free to go, whatever the Lord leads you to do. So if I could get someone to get the lights, please. Father, I thank you for, uh, for this time and for uh, your words to us. Lord, we acknowledge that you are in everything, and so we just ask for your help in dealing with uh, whatever persecutions come our way. We know your word says that you'll take care of it. And so, Father, help us to trust that. Help us not to take matters into our own hands as we do so often, but simply to trust in you to guide us, lead us, tell us how we are to um, react. Bless all those who are gathered here today. Father, I thank you for each one of them. I'm so glad they were here. Bless them as they go. Bless them as they... Uh, Go to jobs and to family and to whatever this week has for them. Guide and direct them. Father, give them opportunities, each and every one, to be that one encounter for one or two people this week. And Father, let them come back and say, I did it. You know, I did what you said and it was amazing. So I give you thanks, Father, and praise. And I ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.